What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. Welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique. We got a Picasso on the damn podcast today, man. The man has been through almost everything, personal trainer, strength and conditioning coach, PhD student. He's been been around in the trenches and all right now. Now he is producing textbooks, which we just learned. <laughs> and I, I'm really excited to kind of learn a little bit more about that. But specifically right now, my man, Corey, for our eight listeners out there right now, um, kind of give you a preview view. Like I first learned from you from the Clinical Athlete um, podcast, <laughs> and I really enjoyed your perspective of, you know, we went into the PhD, wasn't really for you because, again, I think a lot of people get into the science or they don't really understand what it may be take. And they, again, sometimes, and I, I've kind of found it myself now in my PhD program, a lot of these professors, they're not very practical in a sense. And I think that's, you know, an over, overwhelming problem for a lot of, you know, scientists, right? They, they just, it's their niche and it, it doesn't pertain to certain practitioners in there. Um, so it seems like that's one of the reasons why you said, Hey, maybe this isn't for me, uh, but we'll kind of get into that. But sure. Corey, go ahead and introduce yourself, my man. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks guys for, for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. And I'm glad uh, it took a bit, but we, we made it work. We made it happen. So um, yeah. So cl- classically, historically, I'm a, a, a strength and conditioning coach. That was my uh, education through undergrad. Um, Got my master's in nutrition, which is really where I got my feet wet on the academic side of things. So I was a teaching assistant from the nutrition department and would help teach, you know, all kinds of different classes from nutrition metabolism to personal training. Um, And then, as you mentioned, Adam, I actually started my doctorate in nutrition at Iowa State. And that was even more thrust, obviously, into the world of academia. And for me in particular, uh, you know, research and uh, research that I had never been exposed to. Um, and through, through many, through, you know, different, uh, through different like things that happened, I ended up in a very uh, mechanistic biochem heavy lab. And like, think about your exercise science training <laughs> uh, in undergrad. It does not prepare you for that, like whatsoever. Um, so even though I found the topic really interesting, because what I was researching was the effect of vitamin D on like a diabetic state, which is kind of interesting because we were getting into like, you know, vitamin D, we're getting into some epigenetic stuff, but, you know, all of our research was in, was in rats. And so I was like, I've never dealt with this before. You had to like weigh them every day and they've got diabetes. So they're like peeing on you everywhere. It's just like, what is happening? Uh, And, you know, it was, uh, it speaks really to uh, the importance of fit when you're doing something and, and how, yes, it's interesting to you. Yes. Like you could muscle through it to, for, to a degree, but if it's so contrary to what really who, who you are and what you're prepared for, it's a big gap to fill. And, you know, so I, I was a coach who's used to being on the floor interacting and I traded, you know, your, your whistle and shorts for a lab coat and rats and being in a lab. And it just, it did not jive with me at all. Um, so it wasn't really, you know, the people were great. The place was great, but what I was doing was, was not something that, that suited me well. Um, so yeah, like I ended up leaving that after about a year and a half 
And then, like you said, I've, I've kind of been, I've been in a lot of different worlds, right? So then I was a personal trainer for, for about six, six months after that. That was really my first exposure to general population and, and teaching them and coaching them. And, and it was really, really valuable, like would not trade that for anything. Uh, and then I got a job at a, at a small school in Northwest Iowa called Northwestern College um, as a dual role uh, professor of practice of kinesiology and extra uh, strength and conditioning coach. Um, so what that looked like was, you know, four classes per semester. Uh, and I taught nutrition, motor learning, strength and conditioning, personal training, uh, anatomy, just a very wide range of stuff. And yes, I did have to go back and relearn some of that. <laughs> uh, and then I was the strength coach for football, wrestling, the soccer teams, cheer and dance. So you mentioned that the personal training in the general population was extremely beneficial in that experience. What about the experience of getting peed on by the rats and dressing in a lab coat? Did you find enjoyable? Because I think a lot of people and you sort of went to it as well. And that's why I ask a lot of people always dwell on the negatives of situation. And even if you might've not have enjoyed that, or you found out that wasn't for you, that's still something positive that I'm sure you take things away from. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, was definitely still a learning experience. I mean, there's still a, an aspect of me that enjoyed all of that. Cause I'm just a nerd, you know, you, you, you kind of, uh, you kind of stop and think, man, it's, it's kind of cool that I'm, I'm, I'm measuring gene expression in the, the, the liver of this rat that I killed earlier today or something like that. And so there's that aspect that's really cool. And you, you really, you understand that you're getting and you're doing things that very, very few people get to do. Um, but, you know, like I said, th that gap to jump for me at that point in time. And I think, I mean, I just, I don't think I would ever really look to get back into that, but it was, a, it was too big for me to, to, to jump at that, at that time. Um, so the learning experience was definitely finding out what I was not meant to do and the type of environment I was not meant to be in. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right there that uh, it's a learning experience, but yeah, I definitely enjoyed the information side of things um, because I just, I love nutrition and I was definitely getting a deep dive into it. That's for sure. Now walk us through that transition from again, being a PhD student and then mm -hmm. applying to that small, I think it was a division three school, correct? Yeah. NAI D3. Oh, okay. It's like, yeah. Um, yep. So walk us through that transition of now being involved back on the court, or it seems like again, a variety of sports, but then mm -hmm. also now being a teacher mm -hmm. to other students, mm -hmm. how was that transition? And for, for, I guess now purposes is now that we just figured out what, what was the, why was the end just last year? Yeah. Uh, the transition was a lot. It, it definitely was a lot because at that time I had technically been out of strength and conditioning for three full years um, because I was around it during my master's, but I was on the sports nutrition side. I didn't, my internship was sports nutrition. It was not strength and conditioning. So luckily I got three years on the floor during my undergrad because it was part of my education, part of my degree. Um, and so now I go from not only the world of basically nutrition to the world of really like nitty gritty nutrition, like mechanistic type stuff. Now I'm back into, you know, planning workouts and thinking things from, from a way more macro viewpoint 
and just stuff. My brain just hadn't thought that way in a very long time. <laughs> and then, like I said earlier, I, I did have to relearn some of my, the stuff I had to teach. Like I had not taken anatomical kinesis since my sophomore year of college. And they're like, well, here's one of your, your, your class this first semester is one of them is anatomical. And I'm like, okay, get the textbook, start reading this thing. Um, you know, luckily the classroom stuff was fairly easy to me. Like the lecture stuff was fairly easy to me. Uh, it just did take time to go through that and um, learn the material enough to a point where I could talk about it and answer questions. And um, I really just tried to think about things that I wish I would have had as a college student or things that I knew they would need to know once they're done. You know, um, I, like, you know, if we all sat in a class at anatomical where we just learned origins and insertions and muscle actions, and then we took no step further, that became not very relevant really quickly. Uh, so I always try to take that little step further if it was appropriate. Same when I taught sports nutrition, um, we spent almost no time on the nitty gritty of like the Krebs cycle or anything like that. It was more of the outcome. What does it give us? What do you need to know if you have an athlete come up to you tomorrow in the weight room and ask you about carbohydrates? Um, so even though it took me a few years to get things to where I wanted it to be, I just tried to sprinkle those things in as much as possible whenever I was thinking about what content we wanted to cover, what our assignments going to look like, what our test questions going to be. Um, but yeah, early on, it was like drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> now, you have these different hats, we'll say, mm -hmm. that you've worn. You went from sports nutrition to the really nitty gritty nutrition, mm -hmm. then switching over to programming for the athletes, like the actual lifting itself. How did you communicate between all of the staff when you're a strength coach on the different importance, the different important things that need to be focused on with these athletes? Because I know at a division two level, even the resources are not there to give everything that the athletes need. What about at where you were at? How are you communicating with other coaches? Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really, if you're not, power five division one, like a lot of strength conditioning coaches are in a very similar situation. So I would say, yeah, Chris, we were in a similar situation and particularly my first year with regards to resources, but to answer your question about communicating, you know, everything started off with an individual meeting with every coach that I work with. Um, so, and it, we just really tried to focus on, I tried to lead the discussion onto what they wanted to see out of their players and where they see me fitting in, in, in that development. Um, so I tried to ask questions of like, what types of things do you want to see on the field? Like what's, um, what are specific things you struggle with as a team? You know, what, what types of, you know, if it's soccer, are there, are there certain situations that you get in where your players just cannot seem to make, make the, uh, the moves they need to make, or they can't make the plays they need to make, like what's going on in those situations. And then I would try to translate it, you know, cause coaches will use tons of terminology that, you know, we don't necessarily use in, in exercise science. So I would have to translate it into, okay, this is the specific quality they're talking about, whether that's change of direction, ability, uh, linear speed, 
certain you know types of power, maximum strength, and how to elicit those things. Um, and then in later conversations, make sure that I point out where in the program we're trying to, to develop the thing they told me they wanted. And I think that's really key to like make note of the language and how they described it. Even if like, you know, for novice athletes, even if you take the approach of like 85% of your programming is very similar, how you describe it can be very different. And I think me really working hard to try to understand the mindset of my head sport coaches using their same language, um, trying to learn about the sport as much as I could as I went, uh, that, that went a long way in, into developing the relationship with them. And um, luckily, I, I rarely got questioned on the things I was doing. That's good, man, because I think, you know, some coaches, especially, you know, head coaches, they uh, sometimes they're intimidated by it referring out or getting somebody else's opinion because they're intimidated of you might be taking their spot. And it's very cutthroat, especially at the collegiate level, um, even at the professional level. Hey man, if you're not winning games, get the hell out of here. And then your whole staff is gone. So it's, it's a very uh, scary process in a sense. And you kind of see coaches tighten up or they tense up for that. But I guess specifically, what are, I guess the main considerations that you were taking within these athletes, because again, you barely said about 80, 85%, they're all, similar but it was the way that you communicated your message for these athletes could you give us an example of, i guess maybe football and then on the opposite of the spectrum like cheerling what like how or what were you saying differently to allow them to understand that hey this is why we're doing it so i have a better buy-in with what we're right. doing yeah um so you know with football that's where i would rely on the situational stuff a lot so, you know, talking, we, I'd, I'd go position group by position group. Okay, let's talk line. Like, what do we need here? Like, what are, what are things your offensive linemen or defensive linemen, you know, what do we, first of all, what do we need to be? And like, where's the gap from where we are now? Whether that's from a physical quality, like they can't, they can't, um, you know, power through or stop a, a, a defensive lineman from, from doing a bull rush. Um, or it's a mobility thing. We can't get into certain positions that will tell me like, okay, maybe, you know, O-line needs a little more ankle mobility. Maybe they need a little more, uh, hip flexion, mobility, that kind of stuff. Same. And then we'd go to, to running backs, linebackers, D backs, whatever. Okay. Then try to translate, uh, what they're really going for. So like if a D back, if, if I kind of find out that D backs really struggle tracking the ball as they're running backwards kind of thing, then we maybe work on more like shoulder hip dissociation while tracking in our speed and agility work. So does that make sense to like where I'm asking like, Hey, where, where do we struggle? Like what types of situations or movement combinations do our players maybe need to be better at? And then that goes into like your plan for later. Um, <laughs> cheerleading and dance was definitely a learning experience for me. Like my, my wife was a dancer all through college. So at least I had some familiarity with that. But, um, honestly, the biggest thing there was, first of all, they didn't want to feel like they were a second, like an afterthought. And, um, if you get into collegiate cheerleading, it is, it is quite athletic. 
and, and dances too. But I think people like still think of like high school on, on the sidelines and just making, you know, arm movements and whatever, but you get into collegiate cheerleading com- competitive, there's all the throws and the stunts and all those things. And so actually just kind of highlighting the connection between them not only being safer when they're in exposed positions within their shoulders or just catching somebody, but then the enhanced ability to do those things by becoming stronger and more powerful. Okay. And then, so I would say cheerleading would, it it really was strength and power. Dance was a little more GPP work capacity. Um, And honestly, like going back to gen pop, that's where I actually um, utilized a lot of the types of training and the communication strategies I did at gen pop, because a lot of those athletes had never lifted ever. Um, and so I literally was maybe talking with people who had never squatted before or had never been through a warm up or, or, or anything like that. So, um, that was where I would tend to focus on with those teams. So, so as you were working within these different sports and you were having these meeting with coaches, mm-hmm. how was the opportunity to individually train each of these different subset of populations. For example, football, you have linemen, you have linebackers, you have safeties, you have running backs, quarterbacks. They all probably need something a little different. But at a NAIA school, I'm sure you might have been maybe yeah. the only strength coach, maybe one more. It's not like you had 10 on staff to really target no. each population. So how did yeah. you approach that? Um, yeah, I, I, I honestly did not break it out that much. I just didn't have the bandwidth and I didn't have the, uh, the, the manpower for it. Um, the best I could do really, or the best that I did, um, was, you know, football was such a big team. You know, we're talking like 90 to 120 guys, depending on if you're in season or out season, off season, I would, I did have a developmental program for them and like an upperclassman program. So you had like your freshman year program and you have your sophomore, junior year programs. Um, so the sophomores and juniors were all, all in one program. That was the most I could break it out because I was the most hands-on with football. And, and this is key, logistics allowed me to have the freshmen as the only, like they were only their, their own lift group. Every other team was mixed. And so in a, in a small school setting, and again, I would almost classify all small, small school as non-power five D1. <laughs> um, man, it's, it's like a zoo in the weight room sometimes. And especially in the afternoon, uh, it was like a revolving door. You know, one team comes in, you have the schedule set so that when they're finishing up, the next team is warming up, they come in and it's just the cycle of teams coming in and out. And, uh, to try to do that, the same thing with soccers and wrestling. And, you know, these teams get to be 30 to 45 people on a team when you're at this level it just wasn't realistic or practical from a logistical standpoint. Um, the best that I could do was, well, if there was like a very uh, specific athlete that had an issue with the movement, I would modify as much as possible. So if we had an athlete that like back squat was just a no go, it did not agree with them. They had a ter- terrible history with it. We would, they knew to come to me any day we back squatted and I would alter, alter it for him or if I, or I'd alter it beforehand, but they knew they, that's, that would be just between me and that athlete. Okay. Um, 
always met, always adapting. I adapted some probably something every day based on an uh, an injury or restriction. Uh, from a programming standpoint, I really tried to rely once it was appropriate on auto regulatory methods to try matching the amount of volume an athlete would need to progress from a strength standpoint. And yeah, that, that kind of became what almost every team I would utilize some type of auto regulation to um, make sure they were getting the stimulus needed or, you know, not getting as much volume as they should, or, you know, if they, if they didn't need it as much volume, they wouldn't get it. If they needed more, they would get it through these, these methods. So that was the best way I could, could, come up with to individualize yeah now because you open that can and that's Let's my like, bread and butter is auto regulation <laughs> my friend uh-oh what were you doing or how were you auto regulating your, your program so like specifically what i think of in a lot of college sports they claim to have a linear periodization or some sort of periodization i think mm -hmm. fnlp has a lot of great utility because again you have so many fucking athletes it's really impossible <laughs> yeah. to be like one by one yo how are you feeling are you specifically maybe hey if you feel this way do this workout or if you feel in this way do this workout or what sense of auto regulation were you doing uh i relied on apre i, re I relied on uh, auto regulatory progressive resistance exercise like we i i had to try to to, to find means to do it in a non-subjective way you know I, I i we didn't have again the manpower if we had like in season football we we the entire team trained 65 guys at once and you, you could probably suspect know that half of them show up five minutes before <laughs> so to do some kind of like pre uh training questionnaire was not realistic i had interns try to do a google sheets uh, you know, pre-training questionnaire, they ended up finding that people just did three, three, three. If it was a scale one to five, they would just kind of, you know, in that there's a lot of factors there. Um, so I would rely on basically rep max or rep dictated methods to adjust the uh, intensity and the volume. Now, so could, they, you walk, yeah, could you walk us through, I guess, a specific situation of how you mm -hmm. would adjust it right on the fly? Because, again, it blows my mind. You're able to <laughs> still do that with 80 kids or 80 athletes yeah. in one single room. Or, yeah. again, I'm sure that was on you of the education aspect. And I guess mm -hmm. one of my other questions is, did you always kind of maybe rely on one or two or however number it is on a specific um, player or players to be like, hey, like, I'm going to teach you this. If you catch one of these guys doing it or incorrectly or correctly – let them know or let me know. Did you ever have any sort of relationship like that as well? Um, not necessarily because luckily we, did, uh, we had a strength and conditioning major. So we, once it got up and running, we had about 10, 10 students in that program. And, you know, just through sheer having great students. And I mean, I feel like we prepared them well. We, we rely on them for, for running our sessions. And so in this case, I, I tried to have at least one lift per session. The last set was signed off by a coach or, or, or the most important set, as we'll get into with, with the APRE, uh, was always signed off by a coach. So if an athlete saw a bolded set on their sheet, they knew to find me or one of my interns, and they would have to watch that set and get it circled. 
So that's kind of how I, I took care of that. That's not always feasible for, for everybody. Um, so here's how I would do, you know, the, the APRE. And I basically, I wouldn't do it with every athlete because it's just a lot to manage. So basically the APRE is, you'll have two warm up sets. Let's say it's back squat. Okay. You have two warm up sets. So maybe like a set of 10 and a set of eight. And then you have a third set. That's your, that's your test set. Um, and that would be, that would be dictated by percent of one rep max. So we might have uh, a set of, or we might have 80% on the bar. Reps are, are not determined because they're going to go for basically a rep max. Uh, I never did true rep maxes. I always said, leave one or two in the tank. So we would go to like an RPE, like nine, which I educated them on. Um, based on their number of reps, their third or their fourth and their fifth sets would be adjusted. So let's say again, 80% on the bar. Most people can get around eight, eight ish reps with that. Um, let's say I set the range at like, if they got, uh, five to seven reps, their weight went down by five to 5%. If they got like eight to 10 reps, their weight stayed the same. And then if they got 11 or more, their weight went up by 5% again for their fifth set and their sixth set or their fourth and the fifth. I'm sorry. Um, all that was already on their, on their workout card. Okay. So we watched that third test set. If an athlete gets whatever, how many reps they get, we tell them, Hey, make sure you understand this is your, these are your next two sets. And they would be on their way with their last two sets. So athletes who were feeling not good or they needed more time to quote unquote grow into their weights, they just hadn't developed the skill of lifting that weight yet. They, you know, they would go a couple of weeks with only getting the lower low end range and they would have to take a little bit of weight off the bar for their last two sets. A lot of people would stay the same, but then, you know, few weeks in, you start getting 11, 11, 11, like a, a lot of people are start doing it. And then that adjusts the next week. Right. And, and that's how I would run it a lot. And so I, a lot of the methods that I would employ would be based off of that. And if anyone wants to look into that more, Brian Mann has a book on the APRE. So check that out. Um, and that would be like the true, like pure APRE, whereas mine was a little bit modified. So you take this approach with two warm-up sets. I'm just going to mm -hmm. recap, make sure I have it yep. on the same track. Two yep. warm-up sets, one testing set, which would be approximately 80%. Does that ever change depending on what you're shooting for? Mm -hmm. Yep. So you do that based on what range they hit. You either adjust it down 5%, increase it up 5%. The numbers of going down or up was already on their sheet. Mm -hmm. And then they would complete those two. And then how do you know what to do the following workout or the following week? Um, because if they got their, if they went above, if they had a weight bump, then I adjusted their one rep max. Okay. All right. So that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Now, was this something you utilized for almost all your sports teams or just football or when would this be a good time to use it and not use it? Uh, I actually ended up using some version of it with all my teams. Yep. And I would use this, this would be early off season. So this would be, you know, I mainly had the fall sports. This would be your January, February, March block. Um, 
And just because that was when we were just going for strength gains the most by far. And then um, I did use it a lot in the summer programs as well. Uh, and that the summer programs wouldn't always be the APRE. It'd be something like, here's your weight, get as many reps as you can. Uh, again, up to like nine. And I did educate them on, on what an RP, RPE meant. Or we also use reps in reserve. Okay. Um, and then I might say for three sets after that, you're decreasing your reps by two. So if they warm up and they get five reps on their test set, they would have three sets of three after that. So that'd be another way we could do it. Now talk about just the environment and the culture mm-hmm. that you probably developed through those, those almost plus sets that you were developing. Like that's gotta be some sort of like hype mentality. Cause you know, there's a good research out there with VBT. It increases competitiveness, it increases culture within, you know, uh, uh, rugby teams and stuff like that. So did you experience anything like that where people would just like circle around and be like, let's go and anything like that? <laughs> yeah, it got there. <laughs> it took it took a bit, but it definitely got there. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that had like some great carryover to developing relationships, especially on and off that field, because a weight room, like it really develops that culture. And I think a lot of maybe coaches or just outside general public, they, they miss that, that part of it. And mm. if you're able to develop some great bonds within the weight room and produce hopefully injury prevention while we're doing that, man, like that's, that's a lot of fun. And again, you're teaching it the correct way of how to auto-regulate. And I think, again, that's a, a missing piece because a lot of people, they think every time I go in the gym, I should be able to add five pounds to that bar, or I should be able to do you know, two extra reps and not break eventually. But the way you probably taught it is going to stick with those, those athletes for quite a long time and hopefully improve their training history. Yeah. I really try to take as much of a flexible approach as possible because our readiness is not the same day in and day out week to week. So I tried to account for that. And, you know, I think anyone who gets into training people that they kind of understand that to a degree. And so with these traditional periodization models, you can see where the faults are, not that they can't work. Cause I mean, I think, I mean, I didn't do any auto-regulation training as an athlete and I still, I still made progress. So they could definitely work. And it's not to say that they don't, but I think that for the long term, not just looking at a eight week off season, I think that's probably a better approach, especially if you have, you know, you have a lot of athletes and you can't individualize maybe the way you would be able to with the smaller group. Yeah. And I think auto-regulation, it's still in its infancy. I believe Mm -hmm. the way you're mentioning is how I've read it. I think it was in triphasic training Mm -hmm. that they talked about increasing, decreasing it based off your, your third set, the test set, but that that's how we would monitor the the program itself. I think earlier you said about 80% of your program for all your athletes was practically the same. Maybe that number was slightly off, but that's just a general number. Like a majority of the programs are usually the same, but I think what people don't realize is really sport specific training is going to account for that remaining percentage. What, what does sport specific training mean to you? And how does that sort of defer between different type of sports or athletes within a certain sport? 
Yeah. So just to clarify, the, the that eighty percent earlier was just an example. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I figured too. Okay, like it, it could have been seventy five percent. Like a large. I, I don't portion. even know. Like I don't yeah. even know. Like my like personally, I don't even know. I it's just, an like, arbitrary common, number. Yeah, that's a yeah. common one. But because um, I I tried honestly, I don't know if I ever attained this, but I tried to get to a point even within the construct with, the, with, with where I was working. I tried to make it to a point where if you looked at my program, you could be like, well, that's not a football program. Or like, I bet that's soccer. Or, you know what I mean? I tried to, I tried to like make sure that there's, they, they should look different sport to sport. Now did, I mean, there's only so many ways you can train the body under, under load. So of course there is some care, there is some crossover between movements and whatnot. And I did have the field sports. So there's, there's going to be some, some crossover there too. I mean, when it, when it came to sports specificity, I tried to look at what are the number one, what is the force producing requirements of the sport? So football, depending on the position, you have a high requirement to produce force, right? Especially as you get closer to the ball, as you get away from the ball, not, not as much. And again, that's where I tried to rely on some auto regulation to account for the fact that a wide receiver and a defensive back do not need to be as strong as a linebacker and a defensive lineman. Okay. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't get as individualized as like a Matt Rea, who as soon as they get to like 1.7 times uh, body weight on their squat, they're not doing strength anymore. But uh, it just didn't become quite an emphasis if I had a receiver who was like double body weight squat. Now, with regards to a sport like soccer, um, they need to be strong enough in order to be able to change direction and run fast, all right? But they don't necessarily, although, I don't know, soccer doesn't get sometimes the credit deserves for being a contact sport, at least the soccer at the NAI level, maybe. <laughs> but they don't generally have to move another human like a football player does. Um, so... Once I looked at our strength numbers across the board in soccer, I just didn't focus on strength all that much, like maximum strength. Um, or I would do it through like single leg training. That's a little less quantifiable. Like we didn't have, uh, we didn't do like split squat maxes or we didn't have a single leg RDL max. And that's where I would try to rely on RPE. Okay. Um, so I'd look at that kind of look at that first. And then really where I tried to differentiate my programs was direction of force application. Okay. And again, this is where maybe some of my field sports looked similar because especially, you know, in football and soccer, the running, the cutting, the jumping, you're doing all those things in those sports, again, depending on position, especially in football. All right. But even in that, even in football, um, you know, my lineman programs would have a lot more frontal frontal plane movement in it than some of the other positions. Again, depending on if I could, if I could get enough uh, <laughs> manpower in there. So especially once we got out of that early off season, I really tried to pay attention to, well, actually I'll use an example of early off season first. In what I mean by like direction of force. So at force application, um, 
So one thing that I really started to get into was heavy sled uh, sprinting for acceleration development. And, you know, as you may know, as you know, and as listeners may know, horizontal force generation is, is key in acceleration ability. Like we both, we know it's both horizontal and vertical, you're producing force, but really what will drive you being a good accelerator is your ability to produce force horizontally into the ground. And um, I was reading some of JB Marin's stuff. I was talking with a guy like Ken Clark about how, what they're experiencing with heavy sled. And it just, it allows you to produce force in that vector and direction better than anything else, right? It's very, it's essentially specific strength training for acceleration. Like you can try to do it with a split squat. You can try to do it with like a very, uh, you know, forward shin angle split squat, but that's not ballistic like a sprint, right? So I saw it as like, I saw it as single, heavy single leg ballistic training uh, when we did that stuff. Um, As we got like closer to the season, then we'd maybe focus a little bit more on top speed. Um, But knowing that I wanted to increase the acceleration ability uh, of my, my players and what direction they needed to apply force, that led me down the path of heavy sleds. Now, then I would also try to sprinkle in uh, frontal plane and transverse plane as much as I could as well that was appropriate. So even from the beginning of development uh, with regards to like power training, jump training, and plyometrics, we'd be do, we would do everything three-dimensionally. So uh, almost from the get-go, we were doing something laterally or, or rotationally. So even, even if it's just like um, a depth drop. So we might have a set or a, a week where it's just classic step off the box or step off the, the platform and, and st- uh, land and stick. Next week, it's as you, as you uh, step off the box, rotate 90 degrees. And so you're landing 90 degrees and you do that each way. Uh, next week, it might be step off the box laterally. So now you're having to decelerate and, uh, and develop eccentric force in the frontal plane. And then that would bleed into everything that we did. Um, so every, all the plows we did, all the jumps we did would, would feed into making sure we were getting all planes of motion. And I know coaches know that, like that's, that's like something that's said a lot, like train in all, all planes of motion, but sometimes I don't think that's present in programs. Um, and then with the strength work too, we would try to do, man, I think, my, my, I think my soccer players and my football players got sick of lateral squats <laughs> you know? and, and, uh, but I'm like, I'm thinking that if we need to be better in agility and cutting, man, I don't know if I know a better movement. Um, so go ahead. I think one of you was going to ask a question. Now, I just wanted to highlight like from all of these, I guess, exercise selections that you are putting out there, mm-hmm. nothing is super complex, even at this collegiate level. Like you kept it simple, a sled, if you wanted to add a little bit more variety to a jump, you just said literally turn, but you didn't make them put a band around their ankle or you didn't make anything super complex. What a lot of people think it has to be to get to this optimal level. You kept it to the basics, like literally training all three planes of motion, but you added your own little variety to it with again, a simple uh, depth drop. And as you said that, I was like, 
damn, I didn't even think of that. Like I'm doing something else, but again, it's, it's that simple and that's all it really needs to be to keep them more safe in the weight room. Cause I think, again, that's probably a rule that you had for yourself is, Hey, I want you to walk out of this weight room the way you walked in, which is healthy. Right. And to jeopardize it and make it more complex or special in whatever way, it really increases that risk. So I just wanted to highlight that and, specifically yeah, because to piggyback off of both of you there, it, it's something that I recently heard. I forget where, maybe it was on our podcast, Adam, but as we develop as coaches, people ask, like, as you get to be a better coach, does your exercise knowledge and your, like your exercise pool, does that expand? And I was, I don't know if the person explained it this way, or we just started talking about it, but it's actually the exact opposite. Like the pool actually gets smaller. Like, for example, you, you mentioned lateral lunges for doing or lateral squats to develop lateral acceleration, a lateral strength. Mm-hmm. And regardless of the sport, if the individual moves side to side, lateral lunge is going to be a great, <laughs> right. a great thing. Like it doesn't matter if it's yeah. soccer, it doesn't matter if it's football, you're not going to put a different exercise for both of those because lateral lunge is going to be very good for that. Yeah. So that that's yeah go ahead and that's what i was saying earlier about there's going to be crossover with the movements and especially if like you're dealing with a field sport there's going to be they, they need a lot of the same stuff um as fr- from from that standpoint uh now i to take it a little further if i knew that a certain position had higher ratios of something like i said offensive lineman is going to be kind of working in that frontal plane uh, more than other positions. So there were definitely times where I would actually alter their plyos uh, and some of their accessory movements to reflect that. So like one season, uh, one off season, um, I always tried to have at least one day was their like lower body kind of quad dominant accessory was either frontal or transverse plane. All the like semi-skill skill positions had a sled crossover run. Um, and again, I saw that as a strength movement because we loaded it and the offensive lineman had shuffle instead. It just had that. So just on their card, it just said semi-skill crossover run line shuffle. Um, and so like, I just would try to do that a little, as much as I could, if I knew that a certain group or position or athlete had different demands. Um, now that, Chris, that's an interesting point about the exercises because I almost feel like I went the other way because really early on at my time in Northwestern, we had a very small weight room. We could not do the Olympic lifts. We had five squat racks, six benches, and like three homemade platforms, no bumper plates, bars that were like bent. (laughs) And I just am like, wow. Uh, I have to expand my toolbox here because I was ra- raised in the ga- in the field, quote unquote, very traditionally Olympic lifts. And that's how you, you do it your, for your power development. And I couldn't do any of that. So I had to delve into the world of like jumps and throws and post-activation potentiation methods. Uh, and then once I got later into my time there and I'm trying to think of how are there ways I can challenge and load different vectors of force production 
So, cause I would even try to get in like 45 degree type stuff. Cause that, cause everything isn't in a clean sat, like a cardinal plane. Um, so I would try to think of like medicine ball type variations, um, things where they might go like from a depth drop right into a medicine ball throw against the wall, uh, in, in the frontal plane. So it'd be a, like a lateral throw, or they might do like a step back or like a little jump back with the medicine ball and then throw at the wall and they're facing to the side. You know, those are ways you can add a little bit of load and challenge to it. And so I felt like I had to almost expand my toolbox a little bit. Um, but I also did rely on a lot of potentiation methods. So there's some of that too. So let me ask you then, what do you prefer? Did you, pre or for now, like mm -hmm. the Olympic lifts or did you mm -hmm. prefer kind of the way you you had to teach it within your, your, your strength and conditioning program. Cause I've always, and this is my bias Olympic lifts, golly, they take a long ass time to learn. And I'm just impatient as hell. And I can only assume, right. You have a small window within the mm -hmm. season. So now you have to spend time of teaching that. Um, I guess maybe you can dedicate that to the off season and stuff like that. But from now knowing both, what would you choose? Both. <laughs> I just, okay. Um, so I made the, that decision Number one, based on the sport, what, you know, and I, I'm not going to be like Tim Sukumel. I don't know the research like he does as far as like what's going to end up being, uh, you know, the pull versus the catch variation versus the jump variation and, and like force production and all that stuff. But, you know, football is a violent sport. Olympic lift is a violent lift. And. I know that there may not be some like scientific data to support this, but catching a clean on your shoulders and, and landing from a trap bar jump are different animals. And so I just felt like that would prepare my guys a little bit better. And then I'd also go based on kind of development of the team. Like what is their uh, physical development? What do I know about them from a movement standpoint? Are they uh, mature enough to, uh, pay attention to all the intricacies that might go into an Olympic lift. Um, and I never went from the floor. I did everything from the hang. So that kind of helped with the, the teaching as well. Um, and like I said, football, I got more hands-on with, like I had the freshmen as an, their own group. So I felt way more comfortable implementing the lifts. And what I started doing was every day had a barbell complex in it every day. I, as soon as we got into the weight room after the general warm-up, if there was an Olympic lift on the day, they had a barbell complex and, um, that accelerated the time, uh, you know, learning time very quickly. Uh, so that's how I kind of got around that, but having to develop my toolbox from a jump standpoint and using those things I never really had had to use before was very beneficial. Yeah, man. And I got to give you a lot of credit, man, for, thinking hella critically with what you had at your, your, your disposal. Um, and I'm sure that you would agree with what you had. It, it provided you a lot more growth and development and education throughout that process. No but doubt. walk us through a little bit what you're doing now, man. Cause I was still under the pressure. My man's still a strength coach. Like we're going to get into that, but you threw me for a, 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 a <laughs> right field when you was like, nah, man, I work for a, a book publishing company. Mm -hmm. So go ahead and tell us, what yeah. made you make that transition? 
Yeah. So right now, just to give the listeners uh, kind of what, what you're referring to is I have, I'm what's called an acquisitions editor for human kinetics. So any exercise science student uh, will know that because a lot of your textbooks are from human kinetics. Uh, but human kinetics also has a non-academic branch that is, you know, books you, you would find in Barnes and Noble. If, if, when you go to the workout or the sports section. And that, that's my division. It's uh, the trade and professional division. And if you're thinking to yourself, what the heck does an acquisitions editor do? You know, I have that same thought. <laughs> you know, When I saw the job description, I'm like, I don't know what that is, but uh, I'm going to find out. Uh, so the crux of my job is to develop and conceptualize new book ideas and then find and recruit authors to write those books. Okay, and, and then once uh, an author agrees to write a book, my job is to help them throughout the entire writing process, whether that's brainstorming ideas, whether that's um, helping them with formatting their manuscript. Uh, I, I edit the manuscript, so my editorial role is content. Uh, so I was hired because of my content knowledge. Uh, not because I'm a writer. And even though I've always kind of enjoyed writing, um, and in fact, in transitional times in my career so far, one of them being when I did leave the collegiate side, I thought to myself, I wonder what it would be like to be an editor. I never thought it'd be acquisitions. I thought it'd be more like, you know, editing for men's health or editing for a magazine like that. Um, And uh, it kind of, uniquely uh, incorporates everything that I've done to this point because I have very, I have specific subject areas and they are strength and conditioning, strength training, and nutrition. So any topic, any book on those topics that falls under that, those uh, umbrellas, I am responsible for. I'm responsible for growing what's in the human kinetics library based on that, as well as updating any additions we feel need updated. Um, so that's what I'm doing now. And it's, it's, it's awesome. I, uh, I, ne- I never thought I would be doing this, but I always knew that I wanted to do something that allowed me to connect with professionals co- constantly. And that's exactly what I have to do for my job because you need to know who's who and who's doing what and who's a constant expert and who uh, are, is going to be well-suited to communicate their, their expertise to uh, the target population. So what are some important factors that you'll take into account beside, uh, well, I'm not even to make an assumption. What are some factors you'll take into account? Uh, for what, like which, what book to do or like when you said you're trying to figure out who someone is, or you build these relationships with other individuals, how do you go about seeking those individuals and what do you look for? I mean, a lot of it is based off of who's doing speaking at conferences, who's publishing the, the papers on a specific content area, who is putting out content, whether that's on websites or blogs or social media. Um, and that's kind of where you start. Or, you know, you could ask someone who might know. So like very early on, I had to do a lot of reach outs to get a sense for what people thought is important and what's needed as far as an information perspective. So I got a lot of, uh, you know, 
so actually one of my areas is soccer within strength and conditioning. I have a, I have a specific emphasis in soccer. So I, I started reaching out to soccer coaches, uh, soccer coaches that I knew. And my first few weeks, I probably talked to half a dozen MLS coaches about, Hey, what, what problems are you facing? What do you think needs to be out there? Uh, what would you wish you would have had when you were uh, an up and coming strength coach? And that kind of starts my process of conceptualizing um, you know, books. And I did the same with nutrition. Um, I'm always looking for those things. And so for like looking at an author, it's, are they a content expert? Do they have at least some uh, format that they've used to communicate their content expertise, whether that's writing or speaking? Cause you know, not everyone has writing experience in our field for sure. And then do they have a platform to promote that? that knowledge. So it's not that social media is everything, but it's an absolutely a factor, you know, um, because ultimately my job is to create things that will sell. And that, uh, unfor- not unfortunately, it is just is a factor. Like it is exposure matters. Like, you know, you guys need exposure for your podcast or else, you know, you, you, you know, you want, you want to get up to 10 listeners at least, you know, <laughs> And that's really great because uh, before this, I was pretty sure that we we were at four listeners, but I think you added on four more because that was yeah. the first time Adam ever said eight. So, oh, there we go. Yeah, this is impressive. It's that yeah. Corey effect, man. <laughs> like the Brady effect, but with podcasts. <laughs> but no, this has been absolutely amazing, and your different perspectives on awesome. not only yeah. uh, a student, uh, a researcher, a strength coach, and now also an editor. Go ahead. Let our listeners know where they can find you, Instagram, uh, Human Kinetics website, or anywhere that you might be. Yeah, uh, I'm on all social media channels. Just search my name, uh, Corey Van Wyk, V-A-N-W-Y-K. You'll you'll find me. Um, I don't know if you guys, my, my email, CoreyVW at HKUSA.com. If you, anyone knows of a, someone who would be a good author, if you have a book idea that, that you're throwing around in your head, I'm always open. So that's another part of my job. I, I evaluate those things. Uh, if you know of someone, you know, DM me on social, shoot me an email. I, I love to, to hear what you think. Um, and uh, yeah, guys, I love the conversation. Great questions. And uh, I'm really glad we can make this happen. Yeah, man, this was a great, great in different perspective for this podcast. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. Cause again, my apologies. I was no, like, it's oh, good. oh, word, man. So again, man, keep doing that great work. And uh, I'm glad to hear that it's in the right hands for someone like you that will reach out and do their, it's, again, you made it sound like you're doing your homework and it to put out value, valuable content out there in books or eBooks, whatever it may be, because as you know, and we all know, there's a lot of garbage out there, but again, we got somebody that's been in the trenches that's going to do the work to make sure we get quality and uh, good content out there. So, man, that's exciting to hear. Um, so Corey, it was a pleasure to have you on. Um, we'll make sure to put all that information that you just provided in the show notes. And yes. that was all the smoke with my man, Corey Wink. If you have any questions for him, don't be afraid to DM him. If you have a book idea, Write the damn book and get into his DM. Yeah. So. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right, my man. Appreciate y'all. Right. Make sure you guys give us a review. Hit him up, and we will see you guys on the next episode.